Uh, last week, I got the chance to be um, at a camp in, uh, out in California for high school and middle school students. And so I got to, got to preach to high school and middle school students for a week. So I'm glad to be back with you guys, all right? Um, I really had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Um, but one of, the, one of the things you've heard me say here repeatedly is that um, don't be afraid of your questions, right? And, and that we're not afraid of questions. So if you have questions, don't shy away from them. Throw them out there, okay? Well, these students uh, apparently took me like very literally on that. And so in the middle of like every message, like hands kept going up, okay? And they would ask me these questions like right in the middle of the message. And I, I'm not gonna lie, I actually, I enjoyed it, all right? I loved it, it was great. Um, but this one part, we were talking about John chapter eight and the story in John chapter eight where um, Jesus uh, makes this famous statement, right? Of whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And so using an illustration of our sons, I was talking about the way that Sam and Luke um, love collecting rocks. Okay, you've probably heard me talk about this before. They like filling up buckets with rocks, right? They put rocks out on the porch. They put rocks in the back of my truck. And occasionally I caught them putting rocks or trying to put rocks in our muffler. Okay, which is not good, right? (laughs) All right. And so I'm making this point and I say, so we have this rule at our house of we drop rocks, we don't throw them, right? They love throwing rocks, but our rule is we drop rocks, we don't throw them, okay? To illustrate the point of don't cast the stone. Immediately after telling that story, like hands start going up, okay? And one junior high kid asks, "Um, are we allowed to skip rocks across the lake? I'm like, yes, that is allowed, okay? And the other hand goes up, and I'm like, yes. And she's like, what's a muffler? I'm like, the deep mysteries of the faith that we're tackling there, right? Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Today we're starting a series, actually, in a very mysterious book, okay? A book that actually does raise a lot of important theological questions for us, um, far deeper than what a muffler is all about, okay? Okay. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. And um, as you guys know, each summer as a church, we take a book or a passage and we spend the entire summer basically working through um, that book. And we try to anchor ourselves in scripture in that way. And so for the rest of this summer, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Okay, today we're going to start off with a little introduction to the book and looking at chapter one in the book. Um, This this is a theologically rich book. This is such a powerful book. Um, But surrounding this book, right from the start, we have a lot of questions, okay? And some of these questions, we actually don't have any answers for. Like, for instance, who wrote the book of Hebrews? We honestly don't know. We honestly do not know. And from very early on, in the history of Christianity, that has been a major question. Uh, different people have different opinions, okay, and educated guesses on this, um, but we don't know. Early on, some people thought that it was the Apostle Paul because of some of the similar imagery, but it becomes pretty clear uh, really early that this isn't Paul that wrote this. Uh, we do believe that it came from one of Paul's close 
friends and someone within Paul's circle because we can see the influence of Paul in this book. Uh, but it's pretty clear it's not him. Uh, he mentions, the, the author mentions uh, Timothy, who was someone that was incredibly close to Paul. And so uh, we do believe it comes from within that circle, but we honestly, we don't know who wrote the book. Um, a couple of times in the New Testament, you've, uh, you'll see a person named Apollos. And this is a person who it says was very eloquent in his speech um, and, and was incredible at debating about the truth of the Messiah and Jesus being the Messiah. And so over time, many people have started to think that possibly this was Apollos that wrote this book. But again, um, as the early church father Origen says, only God knows who wrote this book. Okay, only God knows that. The other thing we don't have an answer for is exactly which Christian community this is written to. Okay, we know what type of people group this is written to, but we don't know the name of a city. We don't know which specific church for certain. Again, there are a lot of really good educated guesses, but there's no certainty about that. Okay, so a lot of things about this book that we still, um, after 2,000 years, we don't know. We don't completely get. There are some things that we do know for sure, however, about this book. Okay, a few things that we know for sure. We do know without a doubt that this book is written to a group of Jewish Christians, okay? So this is not like Gentiles who are new to Christianity. This is written to a group of people who were raised in Judaism, okay? Were raised following the law of Moses. Were raised uh, practicing the, the type of worship that is native to the Jewish people, okay? Um, of of the, the temple worship, of the sacrifices, things like that. Uh, we know without a doubt this is written to a group of Jewish Christians raised in Judaism who then become followers of Jesus, okay? They become followers of Jesus. We also know that this is written to Christians who are undergoing persecution, okay? They're undergoing persecution, and that's actually the purpose of this book. Um, due to this, this growing and mounting persecution against Christians, um, many people in this Jewish Christian community were on the verge of returning to Judaism. They were on the verge of walking away from Christianity and they were going to stop becoming, being followers of Jesus and they were going to return to the lives that they had before they were transformed by Jesus. And that is the, the, the centerpiece of this book. It is this purpose to encourage these Jewish Christians, do not give up. Don't walk away from the way that your lives have been changed. Don't return to the life that you had before. But instead, Jesus is worthy Jesus is worth it. Continue on. And the author of this book encourages them, continue on regardless of what it will cost you. Regardless of what it will cost you. And that's a, that's a massive thing because what these people were coming up against is not just kind of social pressure, okay? As we see in the book, um, people have already experienced the government seizing their property, okay? 
um, simply for being Christians. We've already seen people being thrown into prison simply for being Christians. And many scholars believe that this book was written uh, right after the time when Paul and Peter, the earliest and most prominent leaders of the Christian church, have just recently been executed for their faith in Jesus and for their leadership of the church. And they've been singled out as instigators of a rebellion, right, against Rome. And therefore, they have been put to death for their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's into this kind of context, in this kind of crisis, that this book enters in, okay? That this message comes to these people. And it is a very persuasive case that the writer of this book makes that we're going to basically refer to instead of as just the author of the book, we're going to refer to as the preacher, okay? Because this book is not just like a letter like we find other letters in the New Testament. It's pretty clear that the, the layout of this book is a sermon, okay? This is a sermon and a very persuasive kind of argument that is being given And so this preacher here is laying out for the people and hammering away for the people this major theme. It's not to demean the life that they had before, not to demean Judaism. But the thing that the the preacher keeps saying to them is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the life you had before. And everything building up to Jesus has simply been the shadow, but Jesus is the light. Everything else has been the shadow, but Jesus is the light. Everything else has had meaning, very deep meaning. It's very meaningful, but Jesus is the one that gives it meaning. Jesus is the one that unlocks the full meaning of what all of those things have been pointing towards. So repeatedly, this preacher is hammering away at this. And it becomes this sermon, this powerful, eloquent, and persuasive sermon. The key point of is the supremacy of Christ. Christ is greater. Jesus is greater. That is the main thrust of the book. We see it all the way through. And so repeatedly he keeps saying that everything else was just pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is now the completion of the covenants. Jesus is the completion of everything that the prophets said. Jesus is the completion of all of the sacrifices. He is the one sacrifice now once and for all. And no more sacrifice is needed anymore because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything leading up to this moment. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Don't turn back, he's saying. So this persuasive, eloquent, and very powerful sermon on the supremacy of Christ. Now, we're going to get that right off the bat. Okay, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1 together. And what you're going to see right off the bat is the main point just shines through in the very first words of this passage, okay? In the first sentence, in these first few verses, uh, especially verses one through four, set up the basically the thesis for the rest of the book. It says, this is what this book is about. And so this preacher comes out just both barrels blazing right off the bat, right? And lays his intentions right out on the table for us from his first words out of his mouth, from the first words that leap off of the page, He lets us know what the rest of this book is going to be about. Here we go. 
uh, starting with verse 1 of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the past, he spoke through the prophets. But in these days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you see all the way right from the start, this is what he's going to be hammering away at. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. You uh, they will wear out like a garment. You will roll roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So you see right from the start, boom. He is hammering away at this point, hammering away at this idea. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Those first four verses lay out the rest of the book. And in just those first four verses, here are the points that he makes. Okay, Jesus is greater than the prophets. As much as we respect and love and listen to the prophets, as much as we feed off of the word of the prophets that God gave, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is the heir of heaven and the creator of the universe. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the representation, exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the revelation of God's heart and God's will. Jesus is the sustaining power, not just the one who creates it through his own creative power, but he holds it in place. He's the one that keeps the whole show from spinning into chaos. He is the sustaining power of it all. He's the purification of sins. He's the purification of sins. And he he says he's the completion of that, right? So in this point, he's even greater than Moses in the law that Moses gave to the people. He is the reigning king 
on the throne and he is greater even than the angels. This is the purpose of the entire book. All right. And we're going to spend the rest of the summer unpacking chapter by chapter what this is all about. But right from the start, he lays it on the table and he says, here's the thing. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. There are two ways, especially that he lays it out in this first chapter. And it goes like this. Number one, eternity is greater than history. Eternity is greater than history. And then number two, the son is greater than the servants. Here's what he has to say. First of all, eternity is greater than history. In this short chapter, and and especially in those first four verses, already we get these allusions to the great, rich, wonderful history of the people of Israel. But as he's laying that history out with reverence for it, with respect and with love for that history, the preacher here is every, at every point putting Jesus as the culmination of that history. Jesus is eternity, he's saying, from the very start. He's the one who speaks the world into existence. He's the one who's existed with God as God since before everything. Jesus is eternity. And even though our history is so rich and deserves so much respect, eternity is greater than history, he says. And Jesus is above it all. In this very first chapter alone, the preacher quotes five psalms. All right, he quotes five psalms, which many of those psalms are connected to David. Okay, very clearly kind of putting that and placing him even above David. Um, second, he quotes Second Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 14, which is something that alludes to David as well. And he quotes Deuteronomy 30, 32, 43, which is an allusion to Moses. And so already from the start, just through the quotations that, the, that he's laying out, okay, even though he says it specifically, also that kind of subtle undercurrent as he is laying out these quotations, he's saying Jesus is the one that all of this has been pointing to. All of this has been pointing to. And it's no mistake that he chooses seven pieces of scripture to point to. Seven pieces of scripture to point to, to set up Jesus as the perfection, as the fulfillment, as the completion of all of these things. As we said, he already speaks specifically about Moses and how Jesus is greater than Moses. We'll get more into that in a couple of weeks in in one of the coming chapters. Um, But he also says in verse eight, when he quotes this, this psalm and he talks about the scepter, right? And the throne, that the scepter of justice and his, that Jesus is on the throne forever. Clearly stating that even Jesus is even greater than David. And that the promise that God gave to David, that someone from your line will rule Israel forever. David had no concept and no framework to understand how incredible that promise actually was. And the way that God fulfills that promise blows all of David's expectations completely out of the water. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. The next piece that we see, number two, is this, that the son is greater than the servants. And there's an interesting thing that happens here. Okay, it seems a little bit weird to us because the preacher puts a lot of emphasis on angels 
in this chapter, right? And that probably freaks us out just a little bit, okay? Angels are a little bit weird to us. And in our culture, we've adopted this idea of angels that, that it's really weird, okay? So either we see them as kind of these like cuddly little babies wearing diapers and with an arrow or whatever and wings, you know? Or we see them kind of like just like floating in the clouds or things like that. And then other places of pop culture in, in our culture, they take on the image of like, like what I think of is like Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, anybody? Yeah, sweet. Now I love Clarence, all right? Clarence, that's, that's my best Jimmy Stewart impersonation. I need to work on that. Okay, Clarence, all right. Um, I love Clarence, okay, but, but he doesn't instill a lot of confidence in me, right? When I, when I look at his character, he's kind of a bumbling character. And a lot of times when we see angels in our culture, and we, when we think about them, uh, we think about them in very, like, very relatable kind of ideas, okay? But in the Hebrew culture and in their mindset, when they talk about angels, we're not talking about cuddly little babies, okay, or nice old men like Clarence. When you look back through the scriptures and you see the way that angels appear through scriptures in the New Testament as well, announcing the coming of the good news, uh, coming as messengers on behalf of God. It happens in the New Testament. It happens throughout the Old Testament. And every time an angel shows up, seems like every time they show up, their first greeting is, is the same phrase. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why do they say that every time? Because they're frightening. Because they were frightening. Because when people saw them, they collapsed in fear because of how great and how powerful they were. All right. These massive and powerful figures clothed in light that the moment people saw them, they were afraid of their power. Okay, they had this sense about them that they are so much higher than the person that they're talking to. Okay, this elevated sense that you could see right off the bat. And so all the time they say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I come with a message from God. So in the Hebrew mindset, this is the idea of angels. Think power. Think straight from the throne room of God. Think coming with a message from God himself. The word angel can be translated as messenger. This is what is going on in their minds. And so it had become this kind of superstition among the people, all right, where they began to really revere these figures that they would see through the Old Testament and even through stories of the Gospels, these, these angels from God. And right off the bat, the preacher is saying, do not put your trust in anyone else. As much as you revere angels, Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is greater than that. As, as powerful as you think they are, they are servants to Jesus. As much as you are drawn to maybe want to worship them, they worship Jesus. They are the servants of God and Jesus is the son and the son is greater than the servants. They are the messengers, but Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message. Don't get it mixed up. 
Don't get it mixed up. Don't look for them to come and save you in your time of trouble. Do not call on them to come and save you in your time of trouble. Jesus has already saved you. Jesus has already saved you and he's the only one who can. The angels worship Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So what we see happening in this first chapter is that message hammered away, hammered away, hammered away. So these people that are steeped in in the Jewish culture and tradition with all of their reverence for that history, with all of the reverence for the beliefs that surround that, this preacher is saying, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Jesus has redeemed you and Jesus is worthy no matter what it costs you. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. We see this even working its way into our culture now. We see this even working its way into our culture now. Why is it that people from all walks of life, from various different religious beliefs, even all the way on the spectrum to ardent non-belief, right? Why is it that people on all of those spectrums, regardless of what they believe, many of them are still drawn to Jesus on some level. Why is that? Why do they, for some reason, still at least respect Jesus and who he was? Why do they find Jesus compelling and intriguing, even those outside of Christianity? We find that all over the place, people who find Jesus intriguing and compelling despite what their religious beliefs are. Why do people who find Christianity and Christians to be disappointing or quite frankly, sometimes worse than disappointing? Why do they still hold Jesus in such high regard? Why do people who find Christianity and Christians to be hypocritical, to be unintelligent, to be mean spirited and to be stuck in the past? Why do people who see Christians and Christianity as that look at Jesus and see him as a moral example, as a brilliant teacher, as being full of love and as being a flat out revolutionary? Why do people see Jesus like that? Why do people who are opposed to Christianity openly wish that Christians were more like Christ. Why is that? Because he's Jesus. Because he's Jesus. And he is greater. And to follow Jesus is to walk in the life worth living, even if it means dying. And somehow people who don't even have a connection to Jesus can look at him and can even sense that can even sense that. To turn towards Jesus means to never turn away from him regardless of where the road leads us. Why do people feel that way about him? Because he's Jesus and he's more than a messenger from God. There's this sense that he is the message. God himself, the living word in flesh and blood. There is something about him that we are drawn to. 
that we are drawn to, whether you can explain him or not, whether you believe in Christianity or not, whether you can stomach Christians or not, people are drawn to Jesus because he's Jesus, because he's Jesus. And he's much more than the shadows that came before him. He is the light that is the very radiance of God's glory. He is the full revelation of God's character and heart. When people see Jesus, they are drawn to him. They are drawn to him. There is something about him. Even those who are opposed to Christianity, they can still look at Jesus and say, there's something to that life. There is something to him. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. What about in your life? Have you experienced that? Or have you become so numb to it? Have you become so numb to it that even the things you bump up against in your life that have nothing in comparison to what is happening to these people for the sake of their belief, right? What is it in your life? So many times we're tempted to pull back. Some of us tempted to even turn back and say, man, this is not what I signed up for. But the message is clear. Jesus is greater and Jesus is worth it regardless of what it costs us. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. This morning, as we wrap up, we're going to celebrate the life and the death of Jesus through communion. When Jesus was with his disciples On the last night, he took the bread that was at the table, an ordinary part of their lives, but he elevates the meaning of it. And Jesus gives it meaning that it didn't have before. He broke the bread and he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. Every time you taste it, remember what I've done for you. Then he takes the cup at the table and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. The one that all the covenants that came before were pointing to the fulfillment of every promise God has ever given before. Those were the shadows and this is the light. Jesus says, through the shedding of my blood, you will receive salvation. Every time you taste this cup, remember how sweet salvation is. Remember what it cost. Jesus invites us to his table today to embrace his sacrifice for us, to embrace his love for us, and for us to say through participating in this meal, Jesus is greater. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worth it, regardless of what it costs. Regardless of what it costs. On occasion, we need to have the light strike us in a new way, to strike us in a fresh way. And I pray that that would happen for you this morning, that you would realize you're not just part of some religion, okay? You're not just saying, I kind of believe in these things. You're a follower of Jesus and he is greater 
than everything. He's greater than everything in the way that the creator of everything is. This is Jesus. If you want to embrace that, then we'll invite you to come forward in just a moment. Tear off a piece of the bread right down front. Then you dip it in the cup. And then you taste and see that the Lord is good. If you are embracing that, we welcome you to come to the Lord's table.